0: Welcome back. This is Steve Shepard. I'm the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, the place for stories that matter. Because I've spent a big part of my professional life in the world of technology, or perhaps better said, the place where technology and people sort of collide, I've spent a lot of time looking at invention and innovation and how they differ. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes I wrestle with the difference. For example, is the Peloton bike with its virtual instructor an invention? or an innovation? What about earbuds, or GPS, or Zoom, or the Oculus virtual reality headset? At a certain level, I guess it doesn't really matter whether something's an invention or an innovation, because sooner or later, it either makes life better for us or it doesn't. I mean, let's look at aviation, for example. According to the most commonly told story, Wilbur and Orville Wright were the first humans to leave the Earth on a self-powered airplane, flying for 59 seconds in 1903 at Kitty Hawk in North Carolina's Outer Banks. There's no question that their flight was a major human milestone, but as with all great human endeavors, there's some controversy over whether they were the first to actually achieve human flight. And here's why. In the 1890s, a guy named Alberto Santos Dumont, who lived in Paris, became intensely interested in human flight. He had devoured books and articles about lighter than air vehicles like hot air balloons and the early dirigibles, which at the time were called airships. Now, it turned out that he was a member of a Brazilian family that had become fabulously wealthy by creating a coffee empire. So, Alberto, who wasn't hurting for money, began to spend a lot of it on experimental balloon-based flying machines, hot air balloons and dirigibles. He succeeded. He even had a personal blimp that he would fly from his apartment near the Arc de Triomphe to his favorite restaurant where he would tie it to a lamppost while he ate. Try that today. Anyway, once he figured out the business of lighter-than-air vehicles, he decided to go after airplanes, or aeroplanes, as they were called back then, and he did it. On October 23, 1906, he took off in a biplane to an altitude of about 15 feet and flew a distance of about 200 feet. Three weeks later, he broke the world record by flying 726 feet. Now, that won't get you from Chicago to L.A., but hey, it's something. It's something. Now, the reason for the controversy over who actually flew first has to do with the fact that Santos Dumont's plane took off unassisted under its own power, while the Wright Brothers plane slid down a rail and took advantage of the strong winds at Kitty Hawk to give it the lift it needed to rise into the air above the sand dunes. Another point of contention was that Santos Dumont's flight took place in the public eye, while Wilbur and Orville's flight was cloaked in secrecy. Now look, I don't care, but it's interesting to ask this question. What was the real invention? Was it the plane itself, or was it the curvable, shapeable wing design that gave the pilot the ability to get off the ground and maneuver? And what about innovation? I can easily argue that both aircraft were innovations in their own right. Orville and Wilbur's, because the design harnessed the wind for lift, or Alberto Santos Dumont's design because it took off with the power of its own engine. Well, I'm going to stick with a definition of the two, invention and innovation, that works pretty well. Invention is literally that, the creation of something new that works. For example, Thomas Edison's tungsten filament-based light bulb, which took something on the order of a thousand failed prototypes before he got to one that worked, was truly an invention. Innovation, which literally means to make new again, is what happens when an invention is reconsidered by a different set of eyes. For example, the light-emitting diode, or LED, was invented by a bunch of people, each one of them approaching it slightly differently and with different chemical processes. I could argue that the LED is an innovation based on Edison's original work, since they were both created to do the same thing. John Gahagan, whose voice you've heard in a few other episodes, is the author of numerous books, including a new one called White Elephant Technology. It's going to be released in the fall of 2023. John spends a lot of his time looking at technologies that, in spite of the fact that they're very innovative, ultimately failed in the marketplace for a variety of reasons. Some of the technologies he has reported on include techniques for asteroid deflection, wave-powered boats underwater aircraft carriers, atomic-powered airships, wind-powered cargo ships, personal submarines, and flying aircraft carriers. As he writes on his website, John believes that heroic investment in white elephant technology is one of the purest expressions of the human condition, and that it's important. He spoke about some of them during our conversation in episode 202.
1: I specialize in reporting on unusual inventions that uh, that fail in the marketplace despite their innovative nature. And I call these inventions white elephant technology or wet tech for short. I've been reporting on on these inventions for, you know, 20 years now. I've, I've written about them for the New York Times science section, for a popular science for Wired magazine, for the Smithsonian Air and Space Magazine, and it's really been kind of the unifying theme in the books that I've written. My first book, Operation Storm, was about these underwater aircraft carriers that the Japanese built during World War II to attack New York City and Washington, D.C. as a follow-up to Pearl Harbor. And my latest book, When Giants Ruled the Sky, is about the U.S. Navy airship program during the 20s and 30s. And both those books have at their core white elephant technology. And the In the case of Operation Storm, it was these giant submarines that could travel one and a half times around the world without refueling and surface off the East Coast and launch 44 attack bombers. And in the case of giants, you know, it was these amazing Zeppelins that the U.S. Navy built that few people know about, but they were the largest, most expensive, most technologically sophisticated aircraft in their day. We're we're talking the 1920s and 30s here.
0: There's a quote I know by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, the author of The Black Swan, that pops into my head as I listen to John talk about these so-called inventive failures. It goes like this. To understand successes, the study of traits in failure needs to be present. For instance, some traits that seem to explain millionaires, like appetite for risk, only appear because one does not study bankruptcies. If one includes bankrupt people in the sample, then risk-taking would not appear to be a valid factor, explaining success. So John's interest in wet tech, as he calls it, white elephant technology, is fascinating, and if Taleb's observations are any indication, it's also very, very important. They may be failures in the eyes of the market, but without them, we wouldn't have the successes that we enjoy. Now, there's another consideration that I want to toss out here, and that's serendipity, which is defined as a happy accident. I think serendipity is the bridge that closes the gap between invention and innovation, and I think it's often the result of curiosity. In fact, I believe that curiosity is more often than not the only thing that helps failures become successes. Let me share a few examples with you, examples that are sort of the opposite of John Gehagan's White Elephant Technologies. These are accidents, or serendipitous events or inventions, that actually succeeded. Now, you've probably heard of some of these, but I'm willing to bet you don't know about all of them. Here's the first one. Wilson Greatbatch was an adjunct professor of engineering at the University of Buffalo in New York. In 1956, he was working on an experimental device that would allow scientists to record the electrical rhythm of the human heart as it beat. But as he was designing his invention, he made a mistake. One of the circuits in the thing required a 10,000-ohm resistor, but he inadvertently grabbed a million-ohm resistor. The result was that the device he was building generated a 1.8 millisecond signal followed by a one-second pause, and then it repeated. Well, as it turned out, that was the precise rhythm of a healthy human heart. He had invented the pacemaker. But had he really... Actually, the medical community already had pacemakers, but they were the size of a large television set, and they were extremely painful for the patient. Grade Batch's version could be implemented and implanted under the skin with a minor surgical procedure, making it completely portable and far less uncomfortable. He and his partner, Dr. William Chardack, implanted the first one in a person in 1960, adding a year and a half to the person's life. Here's another one. Richard James was an engineer in the Navy during World War II. One of the challenges they had on ships was protecting sensitive instruments from all the rocking and rolling that ships did while they were at sea. So he had an idea. What if the instruments could be suspended from springs that would stretch as the ship moved about, giving the delicate onboard instruments the ability to gently bounce around without being shaken too much? So, he began to experiment in the ship's machine shop with different springs. One day, he knocked one of them off the workbench and watched mesmerized as it walked down the stairs by itself. It clearly wouldn't work to protect sensitive electronics, but it was kind of cool. He showed it to his wife, Betty, and the Slinky was born. My friend Paul Whelan, whom you've heard in other episodes of this series likes to observe that Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing, the company that we all know as 3M, has built an empire on paper and sand and glue. And he's right.
1: 3M, you know, is another company that you never think about when you start talking about invention. And yet these guys have invented all kinds of stuff with paper, sand, and glue. And they still give everybody time to go off into a little room, either by yourself or with a group, kick ideas around in terms of what to do and you know post-it notes was an idea gone sour I mean, I mean a glue that didn't stick and all of a sudden they have a side business that that makes a lot more money than than grinding wheels and sandpaper you never know where the, the next big thing is going to come from
0: in 1968 one of 3 m scientists spencer silver was trying to create a new type of glue that would be extremely strong for industrial applications unfortunately it didn't work in fact it wouldn't dry So, he showed it to a bunch of people in the company, and eventually another scientist, Alan Fry, had an idea. He was a regular churchgoer, and he was constantly getting annoyed by the fact that the bookmarks in his hymnal kept falling out. What if we could paint this glue that won't dry on bookmarks, he thought, to make them stay in place? So, in 1979, the world welcomed the birth of the post-it note. Here's another. Kutal Products was a soap company back in the 1920s. Now, in those days, wallpaper was very much in style, but one of the problems with it was that it got dirty because most houses were heated with coal and the coal dust got on everything. So Kutal went looking for a way to clean it off. They knew they couldn't use a traditional wet cleaner since they were looking to clean a paper surface, but something kind of like an eraser might do the trick. Now, this was a big deal. The company was in a competitive industry, and they were losing money. This product could save the company, or it could be the expense that killed it. Now, one of the challenges they faced was that houses were in the process of converting from coal to gas for heating, and gas was a lot cleaner. So if they invested heavily in a wallpaper cleaning product, and the need to clean it went away with the coal, then they would have spent a lot of money on something that was now obsolete. But they decided to go forward, hoping that it didn't move as fast as everybody said it was going to. They came up with a combination of substances that actually worked. And when they demonstrated it to Kroger grocery stores, Kroger jumped on it, agreed to sell the product, and Kutal was saved. Now, this stuff was based on a very simple formula. It was nothing more than water and flour and salt. But it worked. And Kutal products enjoyed profitability until the 1950s, when their sales once again began to decline. Well, one day, Joseph McVicker, who was the son of the man who got the contract with Kroger, was told by his sister-in-law that the kids in her class, she was a schoolteacher, liked to play with the wallpaper cleaning product. So he went to her classroom to watch, and sure enough, they loved it. Well, based on what he saw and encouraged by his sister-in-law, Kay Zufall, he turned the cleaning product into a kid's toy. As a result, Kutal Products created the Rainbow Crafts Company specifically to sell their new toy. It was called Play-Doh. Now, here's one interesting little aside. McVicker was able to convince Bob Keeshan to use the product on his morning TV show. Keishin was the actor who played Captain Kangaroo, one of the most popular children's shows on TV, and that was all it took. Now, by the way, as long as we're talking about wallpaper, let me tell you about Alfred Fielding and Mark Chavannes. They invented a textured wallpaper that they thought people would absolutely clamor for, but they didn't. So instead, they tried to market it as an insulating surface for greenhouses. Well, that didn't work either, so it became bubble wrap. Can you imagine having that as wallpaper? I mean, how long would that last with kids in the house? Okay, here's another interesting story. Back in the 1930s, about halfway between Boston and Plymouth in Massachusetts, there was an inn called the Toll House Inn, run by Kenneth and Ruth Graves Wakefield. One of Ruth's signature desserts was rich chocolate cookies. Well, One day, she went to make a batch for the latest passel of guests, but when she got to the kitchen, she discovered that she was out of baker's chocolate. Well, she did have a bar of Nestle's semi-sweet baking chocolate, so she just chopped it up and mixed it into the batter, assuming it would melt and spread throughout. Fortunately, she was wrong. The chocolate didn't melt, but it got deliciously soft, so she just went with the resulting cookies, served them to her guests, and hoped for the best. Well, the best turned out to be better than the original, and once word of her invention spread, sales of Nestle's semi-sweet chocolate went through the roof. Now apparently she was pretty shrewd because she went on to forge an alliance with Nestle Corporation, under which they agreed to print the Tollhouse cookie recipe on their packages while also supplying Ruth with all the chocolate she needed, free of charge. And by the way, because the process of chopping the bars into little pieces was such a pain, Nestle soon introduced a new product, in 1939, chocolate chips. And then we have the story of Frank Epperson. Never heard of him? Well, maybe not, but I know you're familiar with his work. In 1905, when he was 11 years old, Frank mixed a well-known powdered drink mix into water in a paper cup and put a stick into it to stir it up. Well, he apparently had the attention span of an 11-year-old because he got distracted, he left the drink out overnight, and it froze. You guessed it. But wait, there's more to the story. Twenty years later, Frank Epperson was granted a patent for the Epsicle, but his kids had taken to calling it the Pop Sickle since their pop invented it, and the name stuck. Okay, let's see. During World War II, Dr. Harry Coover was an employee Of Eastman Kodak, where he was on a research team that was trying to come up with a clear plastic that could be molded into precision gun sights for the military. Unfortunately, the stuff they came up with was incredibly sticky, very difficult to work with, and therefore not really useful as a moldable plastic. It stuck to literally everything it came in contact with. By 1951, Coover was still with Eastman Kodak, now leading a research team that was trying to perfect a clear plastic material that would be both heat-resistant and tough to be used for the canopies of jet fighters. Now, one of his research associates, a guy named Fred Joyner, and by the way, there's some irony in that name, as you'll soon see, they happened across the same chemical compound that Coover had come up with first years before, the stuff that was so sticky. Well, it turned out to be quite a success. It was first used during the Vietnam War as a first aid tool for closing the injuries of wounded soldiers, By 1958, the company began to sell the product as alcohol-catalyzed cyanoacrylate adhesive, which was what the patent called it. We know it as superglue. All right, let's talk medicine for a minute. When we first moved to Spain when I was a kid, we lived in an apartment that was on the corner of a street in downtown Madrid called Dr. Fleming. This was in an area where a lot of expatriate families lived, and Dr. Fleming was well-known for being the street where the local prostitutes tended to congregate. Now, that becomes a very funny irony in this story. It turns out that Alexander Fleming, the guy for whom that street is named, was a well-known Scottish bacteriologist. In 1928, he returned to his lab from holiday, where he discovered that the cultures he had been growing of Staphylococcus aureus, a common bacteria that causes staph infections, were still on the counter where he had put them, intending to throw them out before leaving on vacation. But when he looked at them, he found that large swaths of the cultures, which were known to be very hardy, had died. Well, when he investigated, he found that the cultured dishes were infected with a mold called Penicillium notatum. Now, this was important, and thanks to his discovery, An Australian pathologist and a German biochemist, Howard Walter Flory and Sir Ernst Boris Chain, isolated and purified the penicillin as a drug for clinical use. Now, initially, they called it mold juice, but Fleming decided that perhaps mold juice wasn't the best name for a miracle drug, and he renamed it penicillin. Now, take a minute to think about this. Penicillin was the first antibiotic that human beings discovered. Prior to that... A simple cut, an infected hangnail, an abscessed tooth could very easily be a death sentence. Which takes me back to the street in Madrid that was frequented by the ladies of the evening. STDs, penicillin, Dr. Fleming Street. Come on, that's kind of funny, right? Okay, back into the lab and the story of a guy named Percy Spencer. Good guy, Percy. He worked for Raytheon Corporation back in the 1940s on a technology called the magnetron, which is one of the key components of radar. Well, one day while working on the thing, he felt a strange tingling sensation in his pants. And when he investigated, he found that his daily candy bar, the one in his pocket, had melted. And you guessed it. In 1945, he patented the microwave oven. Now, no one knows if all that time in front of the magnetron led Percy to have any three-headed children. In 1878, Russian chemist Konstantin Falberg was working with chemistry professor Ira Remsen at Johns Hopkins University. They were fiddling around with a combination of O-sulfobenzoic acid, phosphorus chloride, and ammonia, which created a compound with the appetizing name of benzoic sulfonide. Well, one day, Fallberg took a lunch break but didn't bother to wash his hands. According to the story, and who knows how true this actually is, He noted that his wife's biscuits tasted sweeter than normal. Well, yeah, because his hands were coated with benzoic sulfonide. We all know it as the artificial sweetener called saccharin. By the middle of the 17th century, the monks of the Order of Champagne were quite well known for their extraordinarily good wines. However, they had a problem. They lived in a monastery that was located high up in the French Alps. The altitude produced good fruit, but it was also their enemy. When the winter temperatures descended on their winery, fermentation, which is temperature dependent, stopped, leading to an excess of carbon dioxide in their bottles. The wine became excessively carbonated. So in 1668, they decided to call in the big guns, a French monk named Pierre Pérignon, whose expertise in the field of wine production was legendary. However, by the time he got to troubleshooting, Buyers had become quite fond of the new fizzy drink and so his goal went from lowering the carbonation to making it even more intense. His method came to be known as the French method, la méthode Francaise, and, well, you know the rest. Now, while we're on the subject of fizzy drinks, let me introduce you to America's answer to Dompierre Pérignon, Dr. John Pemberton. In the late 1880s, Pemberton was on a mission. He was a morphine addict and he didn't want to be. He was trying to create an alcohol-based drink laced with cocaine and caffeine. Now wait, alcohol, caffeine, and cocaine. What could possibly go wrong? But he was trying to make a drink that would help people with addictions wean themselves off of whatever it was they were addicted to. Problem was that he was doing this work in Atlanta, Georgia. And somewhere along the way, Prohibition arrived and Georgia outlawed alcohol, so he made a different version of his drink that didn't include alcohol. Now, clearly, this was much safer since it only included cocaine and caffeine. Pemberton, who was a pharmacist, called it Coca-Cola and marketed it as a brain tonic. Yeah, let's go with that. Now, since we're talking about medical cures at the moment, let's talk about Viagra. The little blue pill wasn't originally created to, um, well, you know... Originally, it was created to treat angina, pain caused by heart disease, but it didn't work. It did make the heart beat faster, but for very different reasons, and I think I'll just stop there. Okay, meet Edward Benedictus, a chemist. He was working in his lab one day in 1903 when he accidentally knocked a piece of glassware off the counter onto the floor. Because of the experiment he was doing, it was coated with a chemical called cellulose nitrate. To his utter amazement, the beaker didn't shatter. It just crazed, cracking, but holding its shape. And just like that, safety glass was born. Okay, back to the world of technology. When electronic devices first started to be invented, the components were often coated with shellac as an insulator. The problem with that is that shellac is made from Let's see how do, how do I say this gently? It's made from a substance that comes out of the north end of a southbound Asian beetle. As such, it's hard to collect and therefore expensive. Well, in 1907, Leo Bakeland, a chemist over in Belgium, was fiddling around with a compound that had the friendly name of polyoxybenzyl, methylene, glycol, anhydride. Commit that to memory, please, there will be a test which it turns out was the world's first polymer-based plastic, and it turned out to be perfect for insulating electronic components. Commercially and mercifully, it came to be known as Bakelite, the black tabletops in high school and college chemistry labs. Okay, one more, and then I'll shut up. Rubber is made from latex, the sap of a tree that grows mostly in Asia. During World War II, demand for rubber went up like crazy because of the need for tires and boot soles and waterproof tarps and so on. Well, a worldwide shortage appeared, of course, so the military went looking for an alternative. A group of scientists at the time were working on creating synthetic lubricants with a lot of attention paid to silicone oil. One day, James Wright, an engineer who was working on the team, accidentally spilled boric acid into a pot of silicone oil, resulting in the creation of a rubbery substance that wasn't firm enough to serve as a rubber substitute. But it was kind of fun. It could be stretched and pulled. It didn't make your hands greasy. It bounced. And bonus, if you flattened it on a newspaper or a comic strip, it would magically lift an image of whatever it was stuck to, apply it to a Peanuts cartoon, and Charlie Brown magically appeared on the bottom of what came to be called nutty putty. And eventually, of course, silly putty. What a happy accident. One of many, thankfully. Here's John Gahagan again. There's just something about
1: innovative technology that fails that, that to me begs to tell the story because we're so focused on success in our culture. You know, it's always about these amazing success stories, you know, which usually turn out to be pretty rare, but failure is very widespread. So to me, white elephant technology is the purest expression of the human condition. It has a lot of drama inherent with inventors who believe passionately in their project. That's what really attracted me to the topic.
0: My friend John Gahagan, the author of numerous books, including Operation Storm, When Giants Rule the Sky, and very soon, White Elephant Technology. Thank you, John. Your stories make my day every time I hear them. I'm going to put references to John's books in the show notes. As for me, I'm off in search for some silly putty. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of The Natural Curiosity Project, and I just want to take a few additional seconds to thank you for the gift of your time. I started this program because I believe that Curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. If you've been a listener for a while, you know that the only thing that ties the episodes together is that each one covers a story that deserves to be told, and that each story is something that you should be curious about. I hope you enjoyed the journey we covered in this program, and if you did, please take a couple of minutes to write a brief review wherever you get your podcasts. I cannot tell you how much it means, and how valuable it is to have those reviews. From my heart, thank you. And I'll see you in the next episode.